The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Good evening, Grace Bible Church and Friends of Grace. Our passage this last Sunday morning was from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And so we went back to some of the material that we began introducing last week. We started with an overview of chapter 3, trying to look at some thematic elements, the development of the chapter, how it was going to continue to, to be unpacked, the new offender, as it were, the mocker and their mocking. And so we readdress some of the matters that we introduced in the first two verses and packing them a little bit further and working through the third verse. And it's not going to be our pattern that we necessarily duplicate efforts and, and revisit things, though there is an advantage to that as we, again, wanted to, to more fully develop what we introduced. So we, we covered chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, and again, took the opportunity to um, really give a special attention to the mocker and the nature of their mocking. And we recognize also that Peter doesn't spend a lot of time and attention on the, the mocker necessarily. And so we wanted to give a, a good clear focus on them this first week and maybe even address some of the nature of their prospective motivation and how we can think through these things. And uh, again, Peter's not going to really develop that further beyond this. What he's going to do from this point forward, as we discussed on Sunday morning, was that he's going to address not so much the person and their conduct as he did with the false teachers as he will be their message, the the content of their mocking, and really unpack and uh, just undo that argument with a rebuttal from the Scriptures. But with this, though, we did explore what might be the motivation for the mockers and their mocking. They're, They're a a substantial threat. Peter gives no small amount of attention to the, the nature of their argument. So what, what might motivate this slanders and this biting question? It wasn't just an innocent, I'm just curious, um, where's the promise of Christ coming? Now, there was, a, there was a biting to it. There was an effort to undermine and to cut, and such is the nature of mocking. And we argued that maybe um, we should examine the fact that this is a weighty matter. I mean, there's plenty of mocking, as we'll get to in just a moment, but This is a unique matter because it speaks to Christ's glorious return for his church and ultimately his judging the world and the ushering in of his kingdom. That's all wrapped up in Christ and his coming or the promise of his coming. Matters that express the culmination of our faith. So with this in view, we discussed that perhaps the mockers took note of the the weighty value that the church and the namely specifically the apostles placed on the matter of uh, Christ's return. And we talked about the fact that this subject, the Christ return, or matters related to it, directly, indirectly, we, we're not going to just stretch it out and say, well, that, that's connected, that's connected, if it's artificially connected, or not artificially, but if we're trying to draw out something because we want to see points of connection. I think there's natural, clear points of connection, and this is the consensus of most commentators, that Christ return and matters associated with it are spoken of or addressed in some form or fashion in all New Testament books, with the exception of, I believe it was Philemon and 3 John. So Philemon and 3 John don't necessarily have a clear, overt um, connection to Christ's return and the, uh, the matters and the hopes and expectations associated with it. Perhaps it could be argued that there are points of connection, but the totality of the New Testament, broadly speaking, with those two exceptions, speak to this matter. So it's obviously a weighty matter for the New Testament uh, it's larger message. And we consider maybe also it's because, um, so they saw the value of a high value target, or maybe it's because it's a matter of knowing that um, when uh, what Christ's return will require of them. Well, 
they who love their sins and who persist in rebellious unbelief. Um, they don't want a day of holy reckoning, and, and therefore maybe they just want to dismiss it, undermine it, undercut it. It's not going to change what God's plans are, but it can be a disruption to the hope and the confidence of others and maybe derailing the faith of prospective believers. They don't want Christ to return because, again, of their carnal lust and their drive for their sin. Uh, they, that's, a, that's a frightening prospect, and it's one that they would sooner dismiss and mock. And one more conclusion that I proposed was just as there's a clear strategy by the enemy to undermine and undercut the, the value of, of God creating the heavens and the earths in six days, uh, you, you undermine that foundation, that foundation which provides and gives um, clarity of identity and clarity of purpose for us as, as created beings, as worshipers of God and having a right perspective. You undercut that. You've done a lot of damage, so there's an assault on the beginning, as it were, and this would be the complementary counterpart. It's an assault on the end, the end which gives clarity to the aim and satisfaction of God's purposes and how things are resolved and how he, how he will bring things to a glorious and, and just conclusion. And so there's an assault on the beginning, and I would argue that there's a strategic value to an assault on the end by those who neither know the Lord or love him. So I think that's part of it, um, but ultimately, we have to conclude that we don't know the motivation of the mocker. We, we, we know they have, uh, they're have they driven by carnal lust, so we can speak to that. We know that they're in unbelief, so we can speak to that. We, we know that there are those who they're uh, maybe amongst the false teachers. Maybe they are false teachers. Uh, maybe they're just uh, complementary offenders, and so we can understand that, that there's an intentional effort to undermine the integrity of the Scriptures and the joy of our hope and and to, to produce corruption and defilement. And so we can understand those things, but why ultimately this mocking, we have to just leave it with what is plain. And I think we have enough to work with as we've just uh, summarized there. So while we again don't know the precise reason for the mockers and their mocking and their carnal unbelief, uh, we do know some things that are quite plain. And so what is quite plain? Well, the fact that the Peter has spoken that this is his second letter to these beloved believers and the first letter was a, a comprehensive expression of the true grace of God. These are things that we do know, and that one of the primary expressions of, of this true grace of God expressed throughout the first letter was that temporal suffering yields to eternal glory, and a view to Christ's return and the glory that we will enjoy with him was a major point of emphasis, not only of his first letter, but also his second letter. Those things we do know, and Peter's drawn our attention to those matters, a matter um, that speaks again of Christ's return, where's the promise of his coming, with it the just judgment that uh, uh, provides for us a sober and faithful life, an encouragement amidst present suffering, an encouragement as we're persevering and seeking to walk well. So in view of what we do know, we, we re-examine that. We, we honored Peter's message that I'm stirring you up by way of reminder. We remember that he wanted these things at the fore of our minds, and we realized, wait a second, if this is such a big deal to Peter, it really informs maybe not the motivation of the mocker, but the weight of the engagement with the mocker. So again, we have good reason to conclude why they did it, but we don't have definitive. We can't say, ha-ha, mocker, we know exactly why you do this. Again, we have good reasons, good conclusions, but what we definitively have is the clear testimony that Peter's provided through 1 Peter and 2 Peter to the nature of Christ's glorious return, the hope that provides us, the expectation of future judgment. And so we operated with what we do know, 
to develop the weight of this matter. And so with that, we walked through, I think, some 15 passages, um, and we, we didn't give them exhaustive treatment, just read through them, highlighted the fact that Christ's return, judgment, these are things I wanted to, to, to people to listen to and draw out. And so again, it was a very, very clear element of, our, of the development of the letter. And as I've already spoken to, it was also a very clear development of the New Testament as a whole. So um, judgment, glory, um, these things are very, very plain and obviously have become the object of the mockers mocking. So motivation, good deductions, but the weight of the matter especially clear. And regarding the weight, we addressed what we started to look at last week as well, that we saw some patterns in the book of Second Peter. You remember, and um, again, in the, the conclusion of First Peter, Second Peter chapter 1, as he prepares to engage with false teachers, he, he develops the clarity and authority of the scriptures. And then at, at the conclusion of that, he says, know this first of all. So establishment of the authority and the clarity of the scriptures, and then a special point of emphasis. And that special point of emphasis was on the inspiration of the scriptures, which was an invaluable uh, foundation when engaging false teachers who were going to distort and corrupt and assault the scriptures. Now, in third in Second Peter chapter 3, the third chapter, we noted that we saw a like element of uh, or a like pattern with the foundation of the scriptures, the, the, the testimony of the holy prophets, the words of the holy prophets, the commandment provided through the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, and how that's, again, New and Old Testament or Old and New Testament, the testimony of the scriptures, again, being a foundation before engaging a major threat. And then once more that, knowing this first of all. So for the, in chapter 1, know this first of all. Chapter 3, knowing this first of all, point of special emphasis. And what was the point of special emphasis is that the scriptures not only will be assaulted broadly, but they will be assaulted in this precise area of special attention. Special attention we've been called to, First Peter 1.13, to fix our hope on Christ's glorious return and this special matter of attention that he's developed in First Peter and Second Peter, that the New Testament is developed all throughout, Christ's glorious return, you need to know, give special attention, that will be attacked, assaulted, attempted to be undermined with their mocking. And so that knowing, first of all, was a point of special attention. Um, again, uh, assaulting on that which is commanded to be before us, what Peter's stirring up that we would remember as well. And so we saw that the nature of this mocking was different in that regard. It wasn't just, well, they're mocking because they, they have no regard for us. So they're not mocking because they're just rude or ugly people. No, this was a different weight of mocking, a different weight of consequence to the mocking because of the nature and the weight of the subject of its derision and the object of its derision. Again, Christ's return and with Christ's return, also God's just judgment. And Again, uh, just to drive it home once more, we were reminded, mockers will mock our speech. Mockers will mock our conduct. Again, that's to be expected. We know that the setting aside of former and carnal conduct is it's confusing to a lost world. We drew out 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 4, and all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excess of dissipation, um, maligning you, um, that they go on to malign you, they insult you, they assault you verbally because they don't understand. They don't understand why you've forsaken these things. But this is, this is, this is beyond that uh, more common and general uh, maligning and assaulting because of a, uh, a disdain for holy living, a disdain of things which they don't understand. This is an assault, a, a focused assault, first in the beginning, now in the end, our blessed hope. 
So again, there's a particular weightiness to the mocking of our blessed hope and Christ's due glory. Uh, and in part, uh, the weightiness of this is because if there's no return also of Christ, it's not just that, well, you've undermined and, and challenged a precious doctrine to me. You, you're challenging my blessed hope. That's true. But how does it express itself even more precisely? Well, if there's no return of Christ, then there's also no resurrection. And so now we've just elevated this offense, as it were, at least on the personal level, because as Paul's made plain in 1 Corinthians 15, if there's no resurrection, the word of all people to be most pitied, our faith is useless, worthless, of no value. And we know that there is resurrection, and it does accompany Christ's glorious return. But also, if there's no glorious return of Christ, if there's no imminent return of Christ, then, then Christ, was, who was also mocked and rejected, that's the end. That's how his story ends. Yeah, it ends with the resurrection ascension, but not with fulfillment of promise, and not with the coming for his people, and not with the establishing of his kingdom, and not with just judgment. And so you've really undercut the glory of Christ in such ways that cannot be dismissed. And so again, this mocking was an elevated offense. Knowing this first of all, mockers will come in their mocking. And what's the nature of their mocking? Where is the promise of his coming? This isn't just some trite question, some cute little assault. This is a major offense. And so it's an offense to our blessed hope, but it really even elevate that further, and which that's part of the larger, and the larger being this is an assault on the glory of God, the, the glory of Christ, which again is expressed in our, our blessed hope. And so again, it's an offense that, that is clearly the fruit of wicked unbelief, that, that wants to shame and embarrass what it refuses to believe. It, it won't believe. Just like we talked about how those who mocked Jesus in the cross, it wasn't that they couldn't see, it wasn't that they didn't understand, it wasn't that they didn't have sufficient pieces and information or the clearest expression of truth in all of history, it was that they refused to believe. A rejection that in no small part was embraced because of the demands that submission and faith would require of them. Say, and they're mocking, you come down from the cross and they won't believe. What if he had come down from the cross? That would... Oh, boy, that would have been a, a nightmare scenario for them. But he wasn't compelled to give them an empty cross. Instead, he gave them an empty grave. And so the testimony of his resurrection, ascension, and return continues. And so, again, they, they assault with mocking. And with their mocking, they aim to introduce doubt and derision. And I would argue, well, what's the matter? Who cares? So mocking and doubt and derision. Well, I would argue doubt is a, is a potent tool. Even in small doses, it is a very potent tool and mockery is a cruel dispenser of the poison of doubt. It does damage, it does harm, it does disrupt. So it's a cruel tool that aims to, to wound the faithful and to keep the seeking out from genuinely seeking and pursuing Christ. And as we further develop these matters, we drove to the conclusion that the, the matter of this kind of mocking leaves us really with three possible responses. Obviously, you could come up with innumerable responses, but three larger categorical responses and I, I frame those as you can either be confused now about Christ coming. Oh, boy, it was imminent. How something imminent for 2,000 years? You can be disappointed. Well, you know, the mockers, they, they got a good point. That would be disappointment and a dangerous place to be. Or you can be resolved in your expectation of Christ's imminent return and the judgment that will accompany the end. And we noted that being confused, that can be worked with so long as it's worked on. Confusion, you can't stay confused. That's, a, that's an immature, uh, a, a really a, a, a dishonoring position. It's, it's not something that's pleasing to the Lord. 
that lack of maturity in a major area of doctrine and hope and, and things to which we, we hold fast to. So, but if you're confused, it can be worked on so long as you are, um, as long as you can be worked with so long as it's worked on. So you have to do the work and you can, we'll come alongside one another. And it can be challenging things to understand and to work through. I don't know that any of us have some perfect clarity to it, but we have sharper clarity and deeper roots of hope. Because the doctrine of Christ's imminent return is, again, it's clear, clear enough, and it's certainly precious, and it was certainly a major emphasis throughout the scriptures. So confused, let's work on better appreciation and understanding of these matters. However, if you're disappointed, then it appears that the poison of the mocking has impacted you, and you're listening more to the mocker than to the scriptures, because the scriptures and their testimony is very clear and very plain. And you would, well... There's really no way around it. You need to repent. You need to repent and double down on your attentiveness to the clear testimony of the scriptures. And so if it's produced in you frustration, then again, you need to cry out to God that you would forsake the foolishness of having embraced a taste of that mocking. Because those mockers, they're not motivated to by holiness. They're not motivated by love of the word of God. They're not motivated by, Lord, I don't understand why you haven't come yet. Help me understand and they're motivated by carnal desires, at the minimal, at the minimal. And we've addressed the many other motivations that likely contribute to their conduct as well. <clears throat> but if you're resolved in your expectation of Christ's return and the judgment to come, then you're exactly where you should be. Now the charge is to stay steadfast and continue feeding your soul with truth and let this expectation invigorate your daily obedience, your worship, and how you pray. And to that end, let's consider some ways that we can put these things to practice in prayer. It's going to be very broad, very general, but I think it'll give us some guidance and you can sharpen your focus as you study and, and pray yourself. So this brings us to the conclusion of our review and with it, the aim to apply these matters to prayer. So how might we pray? Just three suggestions. First, pray with thanksgiving that we have a clear pattern of teaching throughout the whole of the New Testament that speaks to Christ's glorious return and the judgment to come. Again, pray with thanksgiving. Thanks be to God that we have so much truth, so much clarity, so much emphasis that Christ is returning, and it's an imminent return. It's a glorious return, and it will bring a righteous judgment. Also, we can pray that we would have a, a proper attentiveness to the clear expressions of our blessed hope and that it would transform your thinking and conduct. Um, again, have a proper attentiveness, proper attentiveness, Tenderness to the clear expressions of our blessed hope. It's very clear. We need to have that fixed hope. But we need to submit to that command of 1 Peter 1.13 and, and the emphasis all throughout the New Testament. And let it transform your thinking. Let it transform your conduct. You know, First John speaks to this. He was fixed his hope on these things. It works a transformative work. And even 2 Peter chapter 1, we have these, these sure promises and these powerful and effectual promises that they, they too accomplish a work in us. And third, pray that you and others would not succumb to the sharp jabs of the mockers mocking, allowing their unbelief to produce doubt, fear, frustration, where there should be confidence, joy, and resolve. This is an, this is an impactful um, assault. If it weren't, they would, Peter wouldn't give attention to such matters. He, he's a man who knows his natural life and, and ministry to the, to the church and his natural life is coming to a conclusion. Remember Second uh, Peter chapter 1, he speaks to that the Lord's made this plain, that his death is soon to come. 
And he gave special attention to this. This is a weighty matter. Don't think that the mockers and their mocking won't impact you and those that we love. And so pray that the Lord would preserve us and keep us and, and help us to stay resolved and faithful. Okay, well, we'll be continuing our engagement in Second Peter chapter 3 next week, uh, working through the finish of this first section of verses 1 through 7, and then taking an initial look into the next section with verse 8. So we're going to get a, um, a peek into the, the timing of his coming at the conclusion of our engagement next week. So we'll look at finishing through verse 7, picking up verse 8, and uh, again, walking through Peter's rebuttal not from personal experience, not from personal craftiness, but from the scriptures to the mockers and their mocking. All right, grace and peace to you all.